Welcome to Superthink on X-Ray FM. I just want to say thank you for taking me under your wing, um, showing me your city, and making me feel part of it. I love you. And at the end of the night, and what I'm most thankful for, is that I suddenly had this feeling of connection. My life shifted into joy, which taught me more about gratitude than anything I'd ever experienced in my life. Today on Superthink, a young entrepreneur whose company is about to go under unloads his troubles onto a stranger who decides to step in and save him. Joe did what any talented and skilled attorney would do when faced with an aggressive, litigious, and not particularly smart opponent. Joe outmaneuvered them. A retired lefty academic, disillusioned and weary, meets the people she needs to rekindle her passion and her joy. There was a critical mass of people guided by compassion rather than self-interest, and we could look into each other's eyes. And a stressed out grad student discovers the pleasure of giving her gifts away for free to people that really need it. At that point, I knew I was done, fulfilled, life was good. I had made this tough 16-year-old boy that had gone through way more traumas than I would ever wish upon anybody in their entire lives feel like a flower and learn what serenity is. Those are our true stories today on Superthank. I'm your host, Erica Klein. So, the people of Superthank seek out stories of gratitude for stuff that matters because gratitude makes people feel happy, which is nice. But if you're like me, then you're bound to be asking the question, who cares? Who cares if people are happy? Since when does happy solve the world's problems? Which is exactly the question I asked Tim Marcroft, one of the founders of Superthank. Happy people tend to be better parents. They tend to do better at their work. They tend to commit fewer crimes. They tend to drive better. They tend to eat better. Um, you tend to see these large-scale social benefits that we would love to be able to create with public policy. Uh, but as it turns out, that's really hard to do. But if you can create large-scale gratitude, it may just be that you can see those 5 to 10% upticks in life satisfaction and well-being, reducing crime, increasing uh, public health simply by promoting gratitude. Super thanks Tim Marcroft explaining why happiness is not just the opposite of sad. Happy people living their meaningful lives provide all of us with a bunch of social benefits. This show is on the radio to spread that feeling. So up first, with a story of gratitude, we have Cameron Medill, an entrepreneur and in 2013 one of Portland Business Journal's 40 Under 40. Cameron's story of gratitude is told in front of a room full of people at Super Thanks' second live storytelling event. What do you mean he has an online record? Well, Cam, he was an attorney. He's a member of the Oregon State Bar. You can just go look it up online. I'm not going to lie to you, it's not good. Multiple suspensions, bad things. Conspiracy to commit fraud, willful deceit of a federal official, embezzlement. These aren't good people. What are we going to do? They owe us like $90,000. That's three months of payroll. I don't think we're going to make it if they don't pay. We did the work. They have to pay, right? 
That's how it works. It was my dad on the phone, my business partner of seven years. My business partner in a partnership that was entering its final weeks. My business partner in a company that employed 10 people and was suddenly generating enough revenue only to pay five. My business partner in a company whose only ray of hope in those agonizing days of early 2009 was a company that was apparently owned by a complete a-hole. There's a code in life that I was raised with. It's a pretty simple code. I don't even know where I picked it up, to be honest. The code goes like this. If someone says, hey, how's it going? Or, what's up? You respond with, good. Or, if you're feeling anal retentive and you'd like to please your eighth grade grammar teacher, you say, well. But the one thing you never do is you never answer the question literally. You never take it as an invitation to share your problems with the person who asked the question. And I remember the day that I broke that code. It was March 2nd, 2009. I was downtown at a restaurant called Karam, a little Lebanese restaurant. Chairs too small, portions too big, the core that was just a little bit off. And sitting across the table from me was a local attorney named Joe Durkee. I'd met Joe socially a few weeks before through mutual friends. We'd hit it off and Joe had asked me if I'd be willing to give him some online marketing tips, one of the things that my company specialized in. I found it to be entertaining. I said, sure, why not? Joe got no online marketing tips that day over lunch. I just kept talking. And every time I'd stop feeling awkward, he would just nod empathetically and I just kept telling more and more about my problems. When we got to the end of all my troubles, I could see Joe becoming visibly agitated. And he just said, this isn't right. This can't be. This is why I got into the law in the first place. It's about protecting the little guy from the big guy. That's what justice is all about, the little guy and the big guy. Honestly, I didn't really know much about attorneys until that point. I didn't know much about them and the purpose they served in society, other than possibly the butt of bad jokes. But it turns out Joe was a business attorney and a very good one. Fast forward six weeks and the ending was pretty simple. We got some of our money, the bad guys got all of their code, and we had a nice letter which said we'd be delighted to never engage with each other ever again. And the path was pretty straightforward. Joe did what any talented and skilled attorney when, would do when faced with an aggressive, litigious, and not particularly smart opponent. Joe outmaneuvered them. But the meaning of the act was not simple. The meaning of the act left an indelible mark on my life. That act of generosity, in a sense, saved me. I was at a point in my career where I had no idea where to turn. And that's what this story is about. It's not just about my gratitude for Joe Durkee, which, make no mistake, is boundless. And the impact it had on my life, which is enormous. It's the kind of act I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to repay. But it was that piece that he said, justice the little guy and the big guy. That's what it's all about. So to me, this is about those people in society who care about the little guy and the big guy, and they're willing to donate time, sacrifice expertise, money, whatever it might be. They believe that justice is not something that's written into our legal code. It's not a state that we arrived at. It's something that we fight to preserve every day. So I'd like to leave you with this thought. Next time you're sitting down 
for lunch with someone you just met, and you ask them how it's going, and they just keep rambling on and on and on. Think about the little guy and the big guy, and ask yourself if this might be your Joe Durkee moment. Cameron Medill thanked Joe Durkee for saving his business and asking for nothing in return. When lawyers do that, it's called pro bono work. But what do you call it when yoga instructors give it away without charging a fee? It costs $3,600 to become a yoga teacher, and there's like 36 million yoga teachers in the world, and I'm not going to grad school for becoming a yoga teacher. Stay tuned. If you have a story of gratitude to share with us, you can email stories at superthank.org or call and tell it in a voicemail. 503-610-0855. That's 610-0855. Up next on the program, from our most recent live storytelling event, Super Thanks Brandon Ross introduces Kay Kendall. Our next speaker, a lady I just met, I think she's amazing, is Kendall. She's a retired college professor of performance studies, queer studies, and English. And also in 1992, she went to Southern Africa as a Fulbright scholar, and she immigrated to South Africa when Nelson Mandela was elected president to do some amazing work. In the summer of 2011, I slumped into a heavy sadness. Barack Obama had not steered the nation toward altruism and compassion. The oil men were still in control. The greedy guts who brought us global warming were still cranking out emissions and running sweatshops. Racism and the so-called war on drugs was slamming 80% of young black men in America into jail and people went shopping. Apathy and materialism had frozen the world's heart. I came of age in the civil rights movement. I marched with hippies for peace in Vietnam. I came out as a lesbian feminist in the 70s. I worked my way through college, paid taxes, raised children, taught college students grading papers till forever, every night and weekend. And I made some idealistic choices with my paycheck. So I ended up on Social Security in my old age. After Obama moved into the White House, my food stamps were cut from $16 a month to $11 a month. And words like poor and working class dropped out of the national conversation. So when I heard that a bunch of anarchists, hippies, and hotheads had taken over Wall Street in September, I lifted my head, grinned, and began to hope. In October, the Occupy movement came to Portland. Dreamers and social activists were drawn to the encampment like electromagnets. People cooked or delivered fresh food to the camp kitchen. Clothing, tents, and sleeping bags showed up. There was an elementary school, a library, a medical clinic, a support group for people with mental illness. There were AA and NA meetings. There were teachers, visual artists, and musicians. I'm a photographer and a writer, so I joined the media committee. My life shifted into joy. 30-somethings with full-time jobs showed up at the camp with their kids, facilitating meetings, talking about the corporate takeover of America. 
I met people of all ages and colors who lived in alternative communities, who rode bikes instead of driving cars, who got their clothes and shoes from thrift stores on principle. There was a critical mass of people guided by compassion rather than self-interest, and we could look into each other's eyes. One day, I stood on Main Street by the camp holding up a sign that said, Healthcare for All. Next to me was a Korean graduate student at Portland State University holding up a sign that said, Fight Greed. On his left was a Nicaraguan janitor from City Hall on his lunch break holding a sign that said, Three great forces rule the world, stupidity, fear, and greed, Albert Einstein. On his left was a disabled software engineer in her 50s. Her sign said, lost my home to Chase Bank. As we stood by the passing traffic, we talked. The janitor said he'd never talked to a Korean before. The woman had always looked the other way when she met homeless people. Now she was one. Conversations happened in camps all over America among people who had never met before. In the general assemblies, people dealt with micro issues, like what to do about cigarette smoking in the camp, and with macro issues, like what is required for our society to transform. I took notes. Rabbi Ariel Stone said Occupy was about caring, the kind of deep caring that rabbis and ministers practice. That kind of caring, she said, requires people meet face to face and talk with each other, look into each other's eyes. You can't do that with an email. Gabe Rolla, an unhoused singer-songwriter, half Filipino and half Native American, told me, I'm here because I wanted to bring my music to the movement and because, like, I want redemption like being part of something bigger than me. Dr. Paul Gorman, a member of Physicians for Social Responsibility, said, it's time to get the 1% out of the way so that we can have the health care that every Oregonian deserves. We want health care for everyone in America, cradle to the grave, nothing less. Kip Silverman's 19-year-old daughter, Samantha, said, I want to believe that we are not just selfish and greedy to our core. An African-American businesswoman in her 70s, Gloria McMurtry, donated meeting space in her bookstore. She said, when Occupy Portland started up, I felt a swell of hope for the community, and I'm still riding that hope. And so am I. I'm not saying the camp was utopia. The problems in society, addiction, inadequate health care, mental illness, domestic violence, betrayal, these were all present in the camp. Of course they were. But we didn't get any support from the power structure in dealing with those problems. And on a weekend in November, the police, acting on behalf of the Portland Business Alliance, suited up in riot gear, put on their stormtrooper boots, pulled their face masks down, hefted their shields, batons, tasers, and pepper spray, and slammed into us. <laughs> One man shouted, we have hacky sacks, you have guns. <laughs> we chanted, 
We don't see no riot here. Take off your riot gear. All that military gear aimed at nonviolent protesters, taxes paid for that. On the night of the shutdown, a young woman who worked all day and spent her nights in the camp held up a sign that said, we are not criminals. We are Americans. We are peaceably assembled to petition the government for redress of grievances. A 40-something man named Jason, whose wife threatened to leave him because he gave so much of himself to the movement, carried a sign that read, Occupy your mind with love. That's what Occupy was about, love. Occupy was about not being selfish and greedy to the core. It was about what FDR said back in 1938, the test of our progress is not whether we add more to the abundance of those who have much. It is whether we provide enough for those who have too little. Some of us are still occupying our hearts, telling our stories, hearing each other. Occupy Portland is not dead, and I'm grateful for that. That was Kate Kendall telling her story of gratitude at Beach Street Parlor in Portland. You're listening to Superthink on X-Ray FM. Here is our very own Kelly Gomez at that same event. Our next storyteller is a firm believer in feeling good and facilitating the feel-good experience for others. She does this through organizing international gap year programs for college-age students through Carpe Diem Education. When she's not dreaming up global experiences, she is joyfully dancing in her garden frolicking through the forest and posing for cliche yoga in cool places photos, uh, please welcome Simone Levine. Thank you. That's a theme. (laughs) I feel like a flower. A tough 16-year-old boy once told me, and he was completely sincere. It was the end of a yoga class that I had taught, and it was his third yoga class in life, and his third yoga class with me. And based on my experience with him in the first yoga class, I had no idea this was going to be his reflection at the end of his third yoga class. The first time he came to class, he stepped in, tough guy, This kid had been through a lot in his life, and he said, I'm not doing yoga. And I said, okay, that's cool. Just come join us on the mat, lay down. You can just chill out here. He said, I've never done yoga. I don't want to do yoga. It's not my thing. I said, okay, that's cool. Just lay down. What I've realized about working with 16-year-old boys is that when we say yoga, they feel soft, and they don't want to feel soft if they're 16 and they're tough. So we do planks. We do a lot of plank poses. We do a lot of things that show their strength because strength is what 16-year-old boys want to feel. This boy, he had come from foster homes. He was currently at a, at a shelter for at-risk youth and he had been in and out of different homes, different unstable places and not too happy about his life. I was teaching for an organization that works with at-risk youth, and he was not happy to be anywhere. 
He decided to start practicing yoga after the planks, and by the end of the first class, he actually had a smile on his face. Score. By the end of the second class, he actually told me, this is true, I feel like a flower. Now for me, I don't know about you guys, but feeling like a flower sounds like a pretty good idea. Flowers are really peaceful, they blow at the wind, the sun shines on them, they like smile with their petals. Everybody's happy if they're feeling like a flower. I was feeling pretty awesome, this kid felt like a flower. By the end of the third class, I asked him, did you learn anything new in the last week? This was our, our check-in activity, and he said, I learned what serenity is. Super cliche, right? I was like, you learn what serenity is? <laughs> Tell me, what is serenity? And he's like, I found peace within myself. Shocking. At that point, I knew I was done, fulfilled, life was good. I had made this tough 16-year-old boy that had gone through way more traumas than I would ever wish upon anybody in their entire lives feel like a flower and learn what serenity is. So I tell this story not to thank myself, because that's probably how it sounds to all of you guys right now. But I tell this story because I also once felt like a flower and learned what serenity was. Back up about mm, eight years, I had just moved to New York City and I started grad school. And anybody who's living in New York City and in grad school is pretty stressed out and also pretty poor. So I'm going through every single day, racking my brain on how I'm gonna make it through the next day. And I decide that I'm going to start doing something that makes me feel good. And I didn't know what that was. So I'm walking down the street one day and I notice this sign and it says, $40 for one month of unlimited yoga. I, I'd done some yoga before. It made me feel like kind of good. It also made me feel really sore. Um, but I decided that I was going to try it out. So I went to my first class, and I felt really strong afterwards. And I also felt like I was really inflexible. And I also felt like maybe this would be good because like a lot of people have told me yoga is good for you. So I went to another class. And after the second class... I realized that I, I actually felt more flexible. And then I went to the third class. And at the end of the third class, if any of you guys have been to yoga, they do this thing called shavasana or corpse pose. Sounds terrible, right? It's where you lay down at the end of class and you just lay there like you're sleeping for like five minutes. I had insomnia living in New York City. I had this bar right outside my window that played live jazz seven nights a week till 4 a.m. And by live jazz, I don't mean like, oh, fall asleep live jazz. I mean drag queens singing Purple Rain at the top of their lungs jazz. I had insomnia. That day in yoga, I actually fell asleep during Shavasana and I woke up knowing what serenity was. I tell this story because I was addicted. I became addicted to yoga. It was the only place I could find peace. It was the only place I could find serenity. It was my tranquil place in a city, in a place where people didn't look me in the eyes, where I felt like I was constantly pushing my face into the books, where I felt like I had to work three jobs just to make ends meet. I had found serenity. And then my month was up 
And I was like, oh, holy shit, what do I do? Freaking out, not serene at all. So I decided to, to talk to the owner of the studio and basically beg her, can you please give me yoga for free? <laughs> I can't afford it. I, $20 a class in New York City for yoga was just completely out of my realm of understanding at that point. And so I decided I would just beg and plead. And she was like, oh, yeah, sure. Just stand on the corner and pass out flyers. So I passed out flyers for the yoga studio and I got free yoga. Awesome. I kept doing this. And then I was really, really excited about getting free yoga. And they were like, you should do one of our training programs. You should become a teacher, Simone. And I was like, I can't become a teacher. It costs $3,600 to become a yoga teacher. And there's like 36 million yoga teachers in the world. And I'm not going to grad school for becoming a yoga teacher. And they're like, okay, fine, fine, fine. Long story short, they end up offering me the opportunity to do a yoga teacher training program for free. For some reason, they saw something within me that was exciting or they thought that I would be good at it. And they gave me this opportunity to take this teacher training program for free. I, off, I, I took it. I took it. I was like, of course, I'm going to take that. That's the perfect opportunity. So for five months, I had this amazing opportunity to go deep into the world of yoga, which taught me more about gratitude than anything I'd ever experienced in my life. Because what I realized in those classes was that when you tune into yourself, you realize that no matter what the strife you have or what the strife anybody else has, you have yourself. And you have the ability to connect with other people. You have the ability to realize that we're all made of the same stuff. And that we're all made to come together and to just realize that there is a moment for peace and there is a moment for serenity and that sometimes it takes those moments that you're pushed and sometimes it takes those moments where you're challenged where you get to the bottom and you're like something here needs to help me something here needs to give me the power needs to give me the strength to feel like I can come to peace with myself and so I'll leave you with this quote it's a it's a poem by Rumi you might have heard it. It's called The Guest House. This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if there are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still, Treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. So I'd like to thank Sarah from Ishta Yoga, who gave me free yoga. I'd like to thank Street Yoga, which is a local Portland organization that offers free yoga to marginalized communities and people who would otherwise not have the opportunity to experience something that can be so transformative. And I'd like to thank all of the people out there that do something that they're passionate about and share it with people for free. Because I think that that is what allows for each of us to find joy, find love, and to transform ourselves to find that serenity. Thank you. Thanks to Simone Levine for sharing her story. You, dear listener, are invited to our next live storytelling event on July 29th. You can register online at eventbrite.com. 
Just search for SuperThank. If you're still on Facebook, you can like SuperThank to get more information about the radio show and live storytelling series. If you have a story to share with us, you can reach out via email. Go to superthank.org or call us and tell it on the voicemail 503-610-0855. SuperThank is on iTunes. Do us a solid and rate and subscribe. It helps spread the word and the love and the gratitude to a wider audience. This radio program and its live storytelling event is produced by the people of Superthank. Ajane Vaughn, Bjarke Kronberg, Brandon Ross, Harai Kalasa, Jefferson Smith, Kara Hansen, Kelly Gomez, Michelle Jones, Michael Pallad, Paul Cohn, Tim Marcroft, and myself, Eric Klein. I wrote and mixed today's program. Thanks for listening. Thanks to the composer of all the music on this program, Portland's own Poddington Bear. <laughs>